we have been going through Malachi, although we have been going through Malachi when we were not gathering, and I hope um, all of you were following um, either on, on Facebook live or uh, even when we shared the sermon on um, our WhatsApp group through the uh, audio uh, sermon. So um, we've, we've, we've had a couple of sermons, and last week we ended up in um, Malachi chapter 3, uh, verse um, verse 5, and then today we're looking at Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 to 12. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 to 12. Now, uh, we're going to look at um, how God's character um, helps us think about giving. Uh, how God's character helps us about giving. You'll notice that if you are reading from the ESV, uh, the section on the ESV, verse 6 to verse 12, all the way up until verse 15, it says, robbing God. So it has the idea of um, keeping our resources uh, from honoring God with them. Um, so let us take this time and pray, then we'll go into the word of God. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we want to thank you for uh, this uh, morning as we draw near to you. We want to thank you that you are a God who continues to speak through your word. And our desire this morning um, is that you will speak to us, O God, and that we will listen to you. Uh, We pray that as we hear your word, that that we will gladly receive it and joyfully walk in it for the grace um, that has been given to us um, by Christ, um, enabling us to um, obey you. We pray that that might be reflected in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So our text today is from the third chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, um, which is Malachi, the uh, prophet Malachi, as we have been making it clear for um, the past um, three weeks, the structure of Malachi is a series of dialogues between Israel and, and God. So there are a couple of disputations that we see um, where God says something and then the Israelites respond and then God again replies once again. So God makes a charge against his people. They respond that they don't know what he's talking about and so he explains it to them usually to their embarrassment and shame. As we turn our attention to the fifth um, of these dialogues, this is Malachi chapter 3, verse 6 to uh, verse 12. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV, let us hear God's word. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. For the, for the days of your fathers... Uh, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have kept them, uh, have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, How shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contribution. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me 
the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, uh, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me uh, and and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open uh, the the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field uh, shall not fail to bear says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will, ca- will call you blessed for you will, ha- you will be a land of delight says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God. Oftentimes we, um, and this is what I love about expository preaching. Expository preaching is that the next passage is um, the sermon. Um, and, and so it, it, it doesn't mean that you, know, you are selecting passages so that you can rebuke people. The next passage is the sermon. So oftentimes whenever we talk about giving and generosity, um, you know, people usually close their ears, usually, um, you know, uh, build a wall so that they cannot hear. I mean, when you talk about money, they say, here we go again. That's why I left the Prosperity Gospel Church. Now I'm, I'm hearing it here. So, 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 so bear with me. This is God's word. Let us hear God's word. Let us hear what God has to say to us um, on the subject. I promise you that it won't be your run-of-the-mill stewardship sermon. Um, but our text this morning, um, I, 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 let us just uh, bear with me as we um, go into the text our text opens up with God speaking. God confronts his people with the fact that their very survival depends upon his unchanging character. And we see that in verses 7, verses 6, and verse 7. Listen to this. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. God starts by declaring his unchanging character and, 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 and showing them that their survival depends upon his unchanging character. That the unchangeableness of God, or as theologians call it, the immutability of God is one of the great truths of his nature and character. In, in, in what is surely one of the best books ever written by any theologian of any age, J.I. Parker, the book is Knowing God. This is what he suggests about the unchangeableness of God or the immutability of God. This is what he says it means. He says, God's life does not change. His character does not change. His truth does not change. His ways do not change. His purposes do not change. And his son does not change. Let us consider that briefly, shall we? His life does not change. The the psalmist expresses it in this way. He says, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He has no beginning and no end. He just is. His character does not change. Many things can change a person. The stress that can change a person, exhaustion, trauma. These things can make a good person bad or a bad person worse. We have all, we, we've all seen the kind of people become bitter and cranky in, in their old age. 
We have seen positive people become uh, negative and, and cynical. But nothing like that can happen to our Creator because His character does not change. He, he never becomes less faithful or less merciful or less just or less good uh, than He was. He never changes. His faithfulness is forever. His truth, again, does not change. All of us have to take back our words from time to time, don't we? Either because we lied or, or we're mistaken or have simply grown in our understanding of something. But God never changes in himself. Isaiah puts it this way in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 6 to verse 8. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. His ways, again, do not change. Our ways are pathetically inconsistent. Are they? We respond one way to one person and the opposite way to someone else. Sometimes we respond differently even to the same person. We respond this way today and the next day we respond differently. But God's ways do not change. He always hates sin, always loves the sinner, always responds to heartfelt confession with forgiveness, always seeks our good. His purposes do not change. As, as, as someone has said that one of the two things causes, there are one or two things that cause a person to change and reverse his plans. It is a, it's either lack of foresight or inability to execute those plans. But since God is both omniscient in the sense that he's all knowing, he knows the past, the present, and the future. He knows the future as if it happened a second ago. He, he, he is omniscient. He is again omnipotent. In other words, he has all power. There's nothing that is uh, above him. There's nothing that he cannot do. God has all power. There's nothing that is more powerful than God. And he never has to go to plan B. Unlike us, where we have plan B, plan C, up until plan Z, then plan Z A, plan Z B. And, and it, unlike, un, unlike us, God has no plan B. It has always been plan A before the foundations of the world. It is still plan B today. It is still plan A today. It's going to be plan A tomorrow up until the future. God's plan A will prevail. In Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, we read these words from the mouth of a false prophet, uh, Balaam. God forces him to uh, come to a recognition of these truths. And he says this about God. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? It's a rhetorical question. Clearly, the question is expecting a resounding no for an answer. God speaks and he acts. He promises and he fulfills. Finally, God's son does not change. In Hebrews chapter 13 verse 8, we are told that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today and forever. 
this is the ultimate basis of our security, isn't it? If we had a God that was changing his mind, if we had a God that could change by situations, we would not be secure in our salvation. We would not have the, 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 the reason to be assured of our salvation. Maybe tomorrow he will change his mind. But he never changes. We never have to wonder whether Jesus will fail us or turn his back on us or cease to be gracious and, and, and cease to forgive us when we sin. Um, um, Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25, it says he's able to save to the uttermost. Listen to this. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. How about that? The fact that he lives to make intercession for us. Just imagine that. Our weak prayers that sometimes are unable to pierce through the ceiling. In, in those moments we can be confident that we are being prayed for by the one who holds the universe by the power of his word. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? He never changes the immutability of God or the unchangeableness of God. Um, sometimes I don't like how theologians use these big words uh, uh, that, that confuse the rest of us, right? Uh, the unchangeableness of God is clearly a foundational aspect of his character with profound implications for our relationship with him. God himself draws that out of us. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. His unchangeableness is tied directly to the survival of his people. The clear implication is that if God were not immutable, if he were not um, you know, unchangeable, they would all be toast. We would all be toast. And the next verse goes on to give the reason for this inference. Ever since the time of your ancestors, God says, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. In other words, what God is saying is that you have been adept to sinning and rebelling against me ever since. That is the whole history of Israel, right? In one sentence, it summarizes Israel's dealings with God. But it does not summarize God's dealings with Israel. And frankly, it's the history of the church as well. If you are a history buff and you, you love reading church history, you'll notice how this is the case with the church. We are a sinful, rebellious, and disobedient people. We all deserve judgment and we would all receive the death penalty were it not for the fact that our God's unchanging nature allows him to forgive those who deserve to be punished. But having indicated his people for, in, 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 indicted his people for their rebellion and disobedience, God does not abandon them. Instead, he appeals to them, return to me. And... And I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't that amazing? We, uh, I used to know someone who, who used to say when people really got to, to, to her, you have pushed me over the edge. 
that means there's no there's no point of returning after this but God says return to me after countless countless of times rebelling against him sinning against him God challenges his people to return to him so that he can return to them we see that in seven, uh, verse 7b the, the clear implication is that there is a direct connection between their behavior and God's blessing or, or lack um, of the same uh, sometimes in our emphasis in our emphasis on the sovereignty of God, his election, his predestination, and his grace, we lose sight of this connection. Uh, yes, salvation is of the Lord. We believe that. And it is by grace alone. But we are not pawns in some kind of cosmic chess game, are we? Um, what we do clearly impacts our relationship with God. God requires something of his people and he promises something in return. Despite their past behavior, if they will turn around and go to the other, go the other direction, God promises to respond to them by opening up his arms. Well, how do they take this challenge? In verse 7b, we discover that they are offended at the notion of their need to return. They answer with their typical response of surprise in verse 7c. Who? Us? How are we to return when we never left? We, we still go to the temple when we can. We, we still show up on feast days. We still say the Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse, it's, it's, verse 4. It was the, the statement of faith. It was the creed of, of Israel. Here, O Israel, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. They, they kept saying that before their meals and before bedtime. Frankly, I don't know if this is a genuine shock or a feigned innocence. I'm more inclined to think that the later is the case. Uh, but it, it's possible they, they, they become so jaded in their religious routine that they really don't have a clue how far they are from God. How about us? Obviously, we are all in church this morning and we could be somewhere else. We have our Bibles open and are listening to a someone or pretending to. But the question is, where are our hearts? Where are our hearts really? If God were to say to any of us, return to me, would we object like the Jews did? Who? Us? Well, God's answer to their objection is rather in a startling manner. It's very surprising. God accuses his people of being God robbers. And this is normal when we get into what we don't want to hear, right? God accuses his people of being God robbers. In verse 8a, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. Now, that is a pretty serious charge, isn't it? 
it is serious. The term rob used here indicates violently seizing um, of that which belongs to someone else. That is the underlying issue here. It all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. God has given his people the land and its produce and uh, as their inheritance, but he made it clear it was actually a stewardship. I, I once said bef- this before, but let me say it again. When we think about our resources, however much God has given us, because he has given us in different measures, when we think about our resources, the pronoun that we must use in refer- when referring to our resources is not mine, but his. Why? Because we recognize that everything belongs to God. And we are entrusted with these things as stewards. They had to understand this. He never signed over the title to them. So when they withhold that portion which, was, um, which the rightful owner commanded them to give, it, it, is not a matter, uh, it is not a simple matter of neglect on their part. It isn't some minor mistake. It is plundering God. It is a highway robbery. They are robbing God. But they again feign indignation when they hear God saying this through the prophet. They say, you can't be serious. When did we hold you up? So... God explains that a failure to give as he is commanded constitutes nothing less than robbery. God explains that a failure to give as he commanded constitutes nothing less than robbery. And with that, we are introduced to one of the most pointed and convicting passages on stewardship in the entire Bible. It is a passage that is cherished by health, wealth, preachers. It is misapplied by many people and just ignored by most, especially us in in a reformed um, expositional context, right? We want to stay away from passages that talk about money. But it is the word of God. And all scripture is breathed out by God. I want to approach it by examining what it meant to those to whom Malachi originally delivered it. And and, and then we will ask what it means for us here in the 21st century. There are four parts to God's explanation. First of all, the sin. Secondly, the curse. Thirdly, the challenge. And four, the promise. Their sin... Their sin is is that they were withholding the tithes and offerings. Tithing was a requirement on Old Testament believers. It was practiced at least from the time of Abraham. Perhaps even back to the Garden of Eden, we are not sure. With the giving of the law through Moses, it was codified, right? A tenth of all income was to be given to the Lord for the support of the Levites. The Levites, in return paid a tithe of a tenth of their tenth to the ministering priest. In addition, a free will offering were expected from time to time. There was a very important purpose to the tithe. You see the twelve types of the 
12 tribes of Israel were each assigned a portion of the land except for the Levites, right? Who were assigned the duty of overseeing the spiritual life of the nation. So the, the, when the land was being demarcated and was being given, only one tribe was not given, which is the Levites. They served the central sanctuary. The, the temple provided the priests and, and supervised the care for widows, orphans, and, 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 and the poor. The, the tithe was designed so that the Levites could live at the same level as the other tribes. As one-twelfth of the nation, they constituted roughly 8.3% of the population. But when the cost of the operating of the temple and the caring of the poor for the poor is added in, it required approximately 10% of the nation's wealth to meet these needs. The, the Israelites in Malachi's day were clearly failing in this responsibility. And now they went stiffing God altogether. They undoubtedly gave small contribution now and then, perhaps even stepping up to the plate whenever crisis tugged at their heartstrings. But they certainly were not giving the whole tithe. Nor were they giving with a willing and a thankful heart. That is their sin here. And as a result of their sin, God says that they are under a curse. Let's look at the curse. The curse, interestingly, doesn't impact um, just the guilty. It impacts the whole nation um, because they are withholding from God. The whole nation suffers. That's usually the case with sin, you know. We, we think our sins are private, that they are almost, um, you know, they, they, they are affecting us only. But that is never the case. That is hardly the case. Or we try to hide them fairly well from fellow worshippers, even from family. But those around us are nevertheless affected. I don't know whether confidentiality is in giving was practiced in Israel as, as it is practiced here at our church at CBC. I mean, those who give tithes, we don't call them to the front to pray for them specifically so, so that others can, can see that they are not giving. <laughs> now, let's suppose that it was. It was uh, those who were failing to give the tithe may have thought that they were getting by with something. They were getting away with something because nobody knew. Maybe they even thought they were doing their families a favor. After all, more money was left for their kids or their retirement. Uh, they, in other words, they were short-sighted. Then we see the curse here. The curse apparently involved the weather and the productivity of the land. The, the, and these are key factors in an agri, uh, agrarian um, society, right? Um, the, the, this is hinted at in verses 10 and verse 11, but it is much clearer in a very similar passage in the prophet Haggai, where a generation or two earlier, God's people have failed to be obedient in rebuilding the lost temple after the Babylonian captivity ended. Remember that um, when they were released from Babylon and they had to go, um, a generation, the first generation did not want to rebuild. And this is what God says through um, Haggai, the prophet, in Haggai chapter 1, verse 7 to 11. Listen to what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build a house that I, I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much. 
And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you beases himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withhold, withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on the man and the beast and all their labors." This is what God is saying. The curse is obviously on their productivity and prosperity. And God has called for a drought and has prevented the land from being productive. Brothers and sisters, there's a profound biblical principle at work here. Namely that God has many ways to discipline his people. Uh, Sometimes he does it swiftly and supernaturally. Remember when Korah rebelled in Moses' day, God opened up the earth and um, it swallowed Korah and his family to their deaths. When Ananias and Sapphira in in, in the New Testament lied um, to the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, God took their lives immediately. In both cases, the people of God took note and shaped up right away. But sometimes God chooses discipline in less dramatic ways. Uh, by using natural calamity or political chaos or foreign enemies. The, the problem is that his people often attribute such, such uh, problems to bad luck or global warming or uh, even fail to even consider that divine discipline might be at work. Perhaps we should be more inclined to at least ask when calamity befalls us or our nation, is God trying to tell us something? Is the church in its apathy and disobedience inviting some, um, something of, of this upon our nation? Amazingly, God does not leave his people without a remedy, does he? And I love, I love the fact that you know, we serve a God who, um, even though he's holy, he has done something so that we can draw near to him. God does not leave us in the woods. He, he never leaves us in the woods. God uh, is like that, the, the, the father of the prodigal son who, who waits and calls his children to come back. In verse 10, he gives them a challenge, a test. And this is the challenge. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that they may, they, 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 there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, of, the Lord Almighty. Although it is wrong to test God with complaining, rebellion and unbelief, as taught in many passages in the Bible, it is not wrong to test him with obedience, especially when he commands it. They are to bring the whole tithe. <laughs> they, are, they are not to just improve their giving. They are not to just increase it. They must bring all that God has required. And they are to bring it in the, into the storehouse, evidently referring to the treasury 
um, temple treasury, the mention of food in my house, especially there, is a reference or for, to the provisions for the priests and Levites, as well as food that, our, that was stockpiled for the poor. God is concerned about these things because, the, because of the neglect of the priesthood. The temple and the poor were certain things that his people, um, it, they were actually showing that his people were covenant breakers and breaking faith with God. Well, if they meet this challenge, what can they expect from God? We see his promise in verse 10, and this is the promise. He says, see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store in it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe says the Lord of hosts then all the nations will call you blessed for yours will be a delightful land says the Lord Almighty I see three different promises here there's unprecedented blessing from heaven removal of the curse from the earth universal acclaim for the nations the first promise the unprecedented blessing from heaven, the the opening of the far gates of heaven is undoubtedly a a metaphor of rain here, the the key to agricultural prosperity. The Maasai tribe in, in Kenya is a fearless tribe. They fear nothing. They, in fact, um, I don't know if um, 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 I have the correct um, fact here in, in terms of the age uh, when, when a, a young man turns 12 they send him in the woods to go and hunt a lion and that's why lions are, are getting extinct among the messiahs <laughs> they, are, they are afraid of nothing but they, they fear one thing, drought because that is a thing that you can't control so God promises to open the floodgates drought was the, their most persistent problem but God is willing to pour out rain to the point that it produces so much blessing they, would, they won't even be able to deal with it this is truly an amazing promise from God and is it for real? did God ever do anything like this for his people? one can look at um, look back at Joseph's day and see a famished family of 70 foreigners develop into a nation of perhaps 2 million who became so prosperous that the Egyptian pharaoh feared that they will overwhelm his nation. Or one can think of King David's time when the kingdom of Israel expanded tremendously as God gave him success in war. Or one can look at Solomon's amazing wealth, so great that the queen of Sheba had to leave Africa to, and travel a great distance to see if the rumors of it were true. Yet, God poured out his blessing at times in a remarkable way. And if people didn't see more examples, perhaps they could only blame themselves. They were so seldom obedient and faithful. Second promise, removal of the curse from the earth. Not only would God produce abundant rain from heaven, he would also remove the curse on the land that we saw in verse 9. That the grasshoppers and other pests which regularly devoured the crops would be no more. The diseases that caused the fruit to fall off the vine still unripened will cease. God promises to remove these hindrances to their prosperity. 
Promise number three, universal acclaim from the nations. The third part of the promise has to do with their reputation. I'm not certain what God means by this. At the very least, he, he seems to be promising that the land of Israel, which had been under the harsh thumb of the Assyrian, Babylonian, and the Persian empires, would once again become delightful and an enviable land. Israel would seem to uh, would be seen as favored, and, and, and the nations around her would wish they were like her. I, I believe that that was partially realized in Herod, um, the, 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 the great day, right? And there, there may be a sense in which it is partially fulfilled in our day as well. Um, for, you know, you ask yourself, why would a nation as tiny as Israel with no known oil reserves be the focus of international politics? They, they don't have oil, but they are the focus that the nation seems to be recognizing God's blessing on Israel. And of course, while they recognize it, they also rage against it and try to destroy Israel. How much greater could the blessing be if Israel were to turn to God and acknowledge her Messiah? Probably the ultimate fulfillment of all three of these promises awaits the second coming of Christ. Now, in our remaining minutes, I wish to address three questions that come to my mind as I studied this passage. Perhaps they have come to your mind as well, even as we, you are listening here. First of all, does this passage require tithing as a biblical standard for giving today? My simple answer is no. The New Testament writers had ample opportunity to affirm the requirement of tithing, but they never do. Rather, they teach a higher standard. And listen to this. You know, young people, when, when, when they now escape the, the, the prosperity, health and wealth gospel, and they come into a reformed uh, uh, teaching that is reformed uh, and, and inclined to, to reformed uh, doctrines, they repudiate everything that has to do with the word tithe and tithing um, as if the New Testament has nothing to say about giving. When you look at the New Testament, it gives a higher standard, right? Which is which is proportional giving. By the way, I'll I'll, I'll talk a bit about um, that word tithe. That is, the more you make more, the more you should give, and not only in amount but also in proportion. There are, of course, a multitude of other stewardship principles taught in the New Testament. Uh, let me let me say this the the reason we still use the word tithe as a church is not in relation with how the Israelites used it it's a principle term at least if you are able to give um, give a tenth of what you're giving right the the the, the word tithe um, it's, it, 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 it gives us a principle. It's, it's a principle term that um, gives us, um, you know, an approach to, to giving. But the New Testament has a higher standard than that. If you are if you are unable to follow the standard of, of the, the, the 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 New Testament of giving higher, at least look at the principle of tithing, and give at least your ten percent. I'm still not a prosperity preacher, by the way, but this is the word of God, right? And I will say this, 
that I believe God is every bit as concerned about our obedience to the New Testament standards of giving as he was to the Israelites' uh, obedience to the Old Testament standards of giving. That the promises he offers us may be different. And the sanctions we experience for disobedience, again, may be different. But we must not assume that we are free just to do as we please in the matter of generous giving. Some people say, but I don't feel generous in my heart, so I, I can't give. Give until you feel generous. Don't wait until you feel generous. Give until your heart tends and you give in generosity. We can end up cheating ourselves every bit as much as the Israelites of Malachi's day cheated themselves. So question number two, does this passage teach that storehouse um, giving should be practiced today? There has been a tendency in some circles to teach that the storehouse today is the local church or the denomination's uh, corporate uh, body uh, program. Uh, the, the, the rationale for bringing all gifts to the storehouse then is that the church leaders know best where your giving should go. My simple answer again is no, but I want you to listen to me carefully. If anything, the New Testament teaches against storehouse giving. Right? That the believers in Corinth were encouraged by Paul to set aside a sum of money in keeping with their income on the first day of every week, saving it up so that when um, he arrived, no, no last-minute collections would have to be made, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. So at least in regard to fundraising for the persecuted Christians in Jerusalem, the believers were to store it up, for themse- up themselves, not bring it to any storehouse. Now, don't misunderstand me here. I believe in generous giving to the local church, and it should happen. For most Christians, I suspect the bulk of their giving should go to their local church. The bulk of your giving should go to the local church, because uh, that's where they and their families receive, receive the bulk of their teaching. This is where you receive the bulk of your fellowship, the bulk of your spiritual support. I don't think there's any excuse for a local church not to have sufficient funds to meet its budget, especially in congregational form of, of, of government like ours, where, where the congregation itself approves the budget. Further, I have long believed that churches never have financial problems. They only have spiritual problems that are reflected in their finances. I hope that was clear. A church never has financial problems. The financial problems of the church are symptomatic to what is happening to the church spiritually. If God's work is being done God's way, it will not lack God's support. If God's people are supporting God's way, God's work God's way, it will not lack support. However, in addition to supporting the work of our local church, I think there's also value in doing some of our giving directly to ministries God lays on your heart or to missionaries we are personally invested in or to people who, who have needs that may uh, not even be part of your church. You must be generous, right? But your generosity, first of all, is to your local church. Doesn't mean after you've given to your church, now uh, your generosity meter has come to, to a maximum. And question three, and last question, does this passage support the prosperity gospel? Because prosperity gospel ministers usually use this passage, don't they? And they use it well, eh? Not well in the sense that they are interpreting it well, but they have results after that. <laughs> the, the simple answer again is no. 
Unfortunately, many preachers use it that way. They interpret Malachi as offering an absolute guarantee of prosperity to anyone who will live in obedience, which is usually defined as sending generous gifts to their ministry. So if you give your 10%, God will return a hundredfold. This is like some spiritual uh, investment. You are investing spiritually and you reap uh, again from, from that ministry. So, um, you know, if, if this was true, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't really need like to invest and, and put up money, uh, policies and stuff like that. We would just have to do this, eh? right? Spiritual investment, knowing that we give and then we, we have 100% coming back. If God is offering an absolute promise to every individual here in Malachi, how do you explain Joseph? One of the most godly men in all of scripture who was sold into slavery and imprisoned on, on trumped up charges. How do you explain Job who went through unprecedented trauma for no fault of his own? Sometimes God uses suffering and sickness in a person's life for reasons other than discipline. And when you turn to the New Testament, the connection between prosperity and obedience is even more tenuous. Right? Listen to what it says, Second um, um, Corinthians chapter nine, verse six to eleven. He says, Paul says, the point is this: whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. But God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for the sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in any every way um, which uh, through us will produce thanksgiving to God. A casual reading of this passage uh, produces some obvious parallels with Malachi chapter 3, right? But a cautious reading also reveals some important differences. The promise of abundance in verse 8, for example, is for abundance of good works. The increase in the harvest in verse 10 has to do with the harvest of righteousness. The purpose of the enrichment in verse 11 is, is not so we can live like kings, um, you know, but so that we can be more generous. And I'm not denying in the list that God may and, and, and sometimes often, often does uh, prosper his children financially and, 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 and health-wise when they are faithful and obedient. I, I just think that his concern is more for our spiritual and eternal prosperity than our physical and material prosperity. If the prosperity gospel were true, the Apostle Paul wouldn't have been poor and persecuted. Right? You see him in, in, in a Roman dungeon writing his last letter to Timothy. He is cold. He's asking Timothy to bring a cloak. Think about that. They wouldn't have gone through that. Paul wouldn't have had a thorn in the flesh that he couldn't get rid of. And Jesus wouldn't have gone to the cross. If the prosperity gospel is true, the cross is irrelevant. Brothers and sisters, let me conclude with this. Malachi chapter 3 is principally about the character of our God. Right? It opened up with his immutability, the fact that he is unchangeable, 
upon which our very survival depends. It, it concludes with his gracious promises upon which our eternal prosperity depends. His greatest promise of all, of course, is the free gift of salvation to all who put their faith and trust in his Son, Jesus Christ, the gift for which there are no words. God is generous in so many ways in our lives. We have no reason not to be generous. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, our Lord and God, we thank you for your word. We do confess that sometimes your word is so hard to hear. But it is your word, Lord. Give us humility to obey you, to submit to you, to humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' blessed name we pray. Amen.